word that has been revealed to us. We thank you that it tells uh, the story of your commitment, your loving faithfulness um, to us. And Lord, we pray that we'll be able to see that clearly today, that we'll be able to see our sins, um, but also your great love and grace, um, how that is greater than that. And Lord, we pray that you'll speak to our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last year, we moved to our new apartment, and we enjoyed the new apartment for many different reasons. It's larger, it's got a great view, um, but uh, it, it also has this, these uh, built-in furniture. But as we moved in, one of the first things uh, that became evident was that it's also an apartment that's infested. It was infested with cockroaches. <laughs> I don't know what you do with cockroaches. In the previous place, I used to do these things, um, cockroach hunting in the middle of the night. I would wake up in the middle of the night. If I happened to wake up, I would go to the living room, turn on the, the light, and go, surprise, and just try to go cockroach hunting everywhere. Well, this was beyond that. Uh, the, it was very evident that it was beyond that, so we, kill, uh, we, we called an exterminator, and we haven't seen uh, too many since then. But why do we kill these things? Well, because they're a nuisance. They invade our space, they eat our food, they, they make things unclean, and they become a health hazard. We kill these things, of course. We do them, and we think it's fit to kill these cockroaches. Human beings are not cockroaches, but we're created, and we're created in God's image, and we're intrinsically valuable because we bear God's image. But ontologically speaking, sort of in the perspective of who we are in our being, the distance between God and us is much greater than the distance between human beings and cockroaches. And we have caused much more evil and suffering and pain and ruination in God's world than cockroaches have. In our sixth part of our series, God's Story, Our Story series, as we t talk about now the kingdom of Israel and, and how they went into the exile, we'll see this pattern that's repeating again. Human beings sinning, ruining God's world, and human beings being exiled, being kicked out, banished from that world. But although we deserve God's judgment and exile, permanent extermination, how God is faithful and loving, and how his faithfulness brings us back into a greater salvation. I try to do this DEF things, A, B, C, D, E, F, D for disobedience, E for exile, and F for faithfulness. We can remember that. And we've seen since Genesis chapter 3 that the problem with humanity is our sin. And sin, like cancer, it spreads. And you can do things to contain the spread, to slow down the spread, but you cannot exterminate the sin within us. Uh, the, for example, like the midnight cockroach attacks, uh, God's judgment actually slows down sin. When God judges and sends the flood, it slows, slows the spread of sin. When God gives, them, he gives people his laws and says, this is the way that you ought to live, it spreads, it contains, it slows down the spread of sin. And when we weren't enough, God sent his king, King David, a righteous ruler who leads his people in the right way. That also slows down and contains the spread sin. But sin always survives. 
Sin survived the flood. Sin survived the, the judgments. And sin, of course, survives the kingship. David himself, we see in the Bible, is a great sinner. And so is his son and so on. In fact, the pattern of people's disobedience and exile, uh, judgment, exile and salvation is repeated in this part of the Bible's story, in the story of God's kingdom and kingship as well. Last week, God promised King David a throne a house that will last forever. God said that somebody in your line will sit on that throne forever, ruling over God's people. And the first kings seemed to be okay. David uh, was great in many ways. I mean, he sinned, but it was great. And his son Solomon, the height of the kingdom of Israel is reached under Solomon's rule when the queen of Sheba from Gentile nations hear of the greatness of Yahweh and the wisdom within, the, within Israel, and she comes to see what was happening, and she brings gifts um, to Israel. It was the height of the, 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 the kingdom. But even as Solomon is known for his wisdom, his folly is great. He goes against God's word. He builds up a huge army against God's word. He marries 700 wives, 700 wives, and has 300 concubines. Instead of being humble king, he builds up his wealth and his treasury. The consequence is a kingdom that is divided, divided kingdom. Uh, the, The kingdom lasts only united, just that David and Solomon's generation. The next generation, immediately, they divide. They split. One of the, his sons, Rehoboam, takes the southern kingdom. Jerusalem is its capital. Jeroboam uh, takes the ten tribes and goes uh, uh, and sets up capital in Shechem and Samaria, later Samaria. Um, and they divide uh, the, the kingdom in this way. And although these two kingdoms altogether last only about 430 years, and during that time, once again, the cycle of sin, disobedience, judgment, and salvation continues. Because the kings are so evil and because they go against God's word, then God raises up his prophets. And the prophet's role is not so much to foretell the future, to tell what's going to happen in the future, but to remind the kings and all the people what God's law was, what God's word was already, how it was already revealed, God's standards are, and they remind them to come back and live under God's rule and his blessings. But because they don't, their message often is about two things, their idolatry and injustice in the land. Our reading today, Isaiah chapter 9, is from Isaiah, and so I'm going to try to contain uh, the message and take parts from Isaiah mostly, but a lot of, uh, mostly these prophetic messages are similar, Um, but I'm going to just try to focus on Isaiah. Isaiah ministered during the reign of King Ahaz of Judah, and he was wicked. He introduced idol worship in Judah. He set up uh, statues of Baal and and erected statues of of Asherah poles. Uh, These are fertility gods uh, of, of Canaanites. He sacrificed his own children in fire, even changed the temple structure within the temple, uh, imitating the temple that he saw in Syria. At different points, he also closed down temple worship. Idolatry 
was rampant in Judah. And idolatry then leads into uh, injustice uh, because people who imitate these unjust gods, they, they, they become like their gods. Idolatry led to injustice and corruption. In Isaiah chapter 1, God calls Israel Sodom and Gomorrah, chapter 1, verse 10. And God tells them in chapter 117, learn to do right, to seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the cause of the widows. Seek justice because there's so much injustice in the land. In chapter 2, he moves on to the cause of injustice, which is idolatry. They are full of superstitions. They practice divinations like the Philistines. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. And it's not just that they have stopped worshiping Yahweh. Yahweh, they still worship. There is this temple there. But Yahweh God is now just one among many gods, like other nations who have multiple gods. And their hearts are far away from Him. The Lord says, These people come near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from Him. Idolatry, injustice, well, that is the theme of the reign of Israel and Judah. That's the same problem that, of course, plagued the world, including Hong Kong. Once again, let's do, talk about idolatry. This world and this land, Hong Kong, is filled with idolatry, idols. I wonder if you see that. It's, uh, there's a, we don't, uh, you might not have statues at home, but idols of money and wealth and uh, health and stat- uh, status, fame, popularity, beauty, <laughs> CV, uh, a right CV, it's there, and it's in our hearts. John Calvin writes famously in his institutes, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. You kill one, there's another one that springs up. You kill one, there's another one that springs up. Our hearts are perpetual factory of idols, he says. And in our modern world, idolatry is actually all over, but we don't call it idolatry, or we might not recognize it as idolatry. Companies, but companies know, and they exploit What's in our hearts? Uh, Through their marketing campaigns. I don't know if you've seen these uh, brands, uh, the adverts, that do not sell products, but they sell images. Um, you know, Nike and Lululemon or whatever, they often do not, don't sell shoes. You know, they, their, their, their advert isn't for the shoes. It's certain image. Right? Uh, they create this image and they try to associate that image with their brands. And people buy these brands not because their products are superior, but because they want to be associated with those brands. They feel if you buy Nike or Lululemon or whatever it is, that you're not bowing down, but you are, uh, um, you are buying the image that they're selling. Right? You feel youthful and sporty and cool or whatever it is. We don't call it idolatry, but we're not bowing down to a statue of Aphrodite, but we're, we're buying, we're, uh, but they're selling an image that we worship. And these branding campaigns basically want you to completely identify with them. So no matter what they sell, you buy. 
Actually, this is what happens with Apple products, right? <laughs> New products come up, and because people so identify with the Apple product, they just buy, they're willing to buy whatever. I mean, that's what Jesus wants us to do, isn't it? Jesus wants us to identify with him so much that we will do whatever he says. And the companies exploit that modern idolatry, and they sell their products. So, Friends, I know that you think, well, I'm not an idolater. It's not something that I do. I, I don't go to um, these temples and I don't have these idols. But examine what is in your hearts. What are the images that you worship, that you want to be like? Is it not Jesus? If there's anything else other than Jesus there, well, that can be an idol in our hearts. And what happens with Israel is that if they worship anything less than our Creator God, they become dehumanized. They become like beasts and animals out there, out there in the world, and they bring ruination and banishment to the world. And people's sins in these kingdoms lead then to exile. Exile. Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden when they sinned. And when the wickedness of God's people became intolerable, they were then again sent into exile. Northern Kingdom was invaded by Assyrians at 722 B.C. Southern Kingdom of Judah fell in 587 B.C. by, the, by King Nebuchadnezzar of, of Babylon, destroyed the temple and Jerusalem. Many are killed and many are then forcibly removed from their homes to live in Babylon. And the reason for this isn't political, it's theological. Here's God's judgment against northern kingdom. All this took place because of the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out of Egypt. The banishment for, of the southern kingdom, it's for the same reason, idolatry and injustice. Uh, I, I in 2007, 2006, December, I was ordained a deacon a long time ago. Um, but I remember in my ordination service, we sang this song. Um, you might know the song, Here I Am, Lord. Uh, do you know that song? Here, the chorus goes, Here I am, Lord. It is I, Lord. I have heard you calling in the night. I will go, Lord, if you lead me. That song. <laughs> and, and, and the words are taken straight out of Isaiah chapter 6. And when in the ordination, you know, I and all the others who were getting ordained, we sang our hearts out. We're answering God's call. But had I known the Bible better, I might not have sung that song so enthusiastically because the rest of chapter 6 is, is about the message that God gives to Isaiah to proclaim. When he answers and he goes, I will go, the message that God gives Isaiah to proclaim to the kingdoms is one of judgment, that you are sinners, that God will bring judgment upon the kingdom of Israel and Judah. That was the message that he was sent, to out, sent out to proclaim. And because he's so distraught, he asks in chapter 6, he gets upset, and he asks, how long, Lord? And his answer, God's answer is, is, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, until the destruction of the land, until the exile. See, 
like a mother warning a child. God, through the prophets, had warned them again and again and again. 400 years of different prophets coming and warning them again and again and again, and they did not listen, and they did not listen. And so God uh, shows them the consequence of their sins. They were banished from the promised land. But after 70 years, as Jeremiah prophesied, they, they come back. Uh, they come back, these people come back from Babylon to Jerusalem, and they rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. But uh, those who knew the city before, this is a curious thing, when they rebuild it, they start crying. They start crying because they remember the greatness of the temple before, greatness of Jerusalem before, and they realize that after the exile, Jerusalem isn't the same anymore. There's something different they, feel, they come back home, and they feel out of place in the home that they returned to. Here, the Bible is saying something very profound about the world. What it's saying is physical exile, Israel's physical exile, was just a metaphor for human condition. The whole world is fallen. The whole world is fallen. There's not a place in the whole world that's not touched by sin and its curses and death. Uh, we are in exile since the time of Adam and Eve. They, they were being banished. We are in exile. We live in this fallen world, which is why Apostle Peter calls Christians not only of God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But he also says that you are foreigners and exiles in this world, no matter who you are. In Hong Kong, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, I mean, Korean, Hong Kong, native here, if you're a Christian, this is not your ultimate home. Nowhere in the world should you feel entirely at home nowhere in the world because you do not belong here in this fallen world. We're in exile. So we must pay attention then to the instruction that God had given to the exile. So I'm going to go quickly there. He didn't go tell the exiles to go and rebel or to assimilate. He said this through Jeremiah, build houses and settle down. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city in which you have to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Be there, build houses, have children, seek peace and prosperity of the city. Don't rebel. Don't conform. Be, live as my people there, is what he's saying. Live as God's distinct people in the midst of an evil world. And, of course, we see this worked out in the book of Daniel, amongst other books. Daniel is in exile. He's in Babylon. He works for a Babylonian king. He takes on a Babylonian name. And he seems to maybe, uh, uh, he, he makes his home there. But if you think, oh, he's just assimilated, he's sold out, well, that's not what, it, what he does. That book, the entire book, is really about drawing lines and saying, actually, I am a Yahweh person, right? I am a worshiper of Yahweh in the middle of this city. 
And so he draws lines. I, his, he and his friends, he can't eat this. They can't eat this, this food. They won't bow down to this idol. And they will keep on worshiping and praying to the Lord, even if it's forbidden. That's how we are to live in exile, as distinct people of God. You know, making our home here, living, praying uh, for the blessing and prosperity of this city, but living as distinct people of God in the middle of the fallen world. So let me ask, you know, is that how you see yourself? Have you made your home in this world, or do you see yourself as people in exile? Where is your permanent home? Have we drawn lines to be distinct, to be holy, to be set apart as God's people? If you don't know, take out your diary. See who you hang out with, what you have done. In the past. How do you spend your money? How do you spend your free time? How do you educate your children? What are the priorities for your children that you have set? How do you spend your time? How do you live your life? Are we distinct people? And of course, I should say, this is not just an individual call for you to do it on your own. We are to be a distinct people of God, a people of God. You know, in pre-exilic Israel and Judah, there were righteous people there. There were one and two people there. I mean, Ezekiel is one, Daniel is one, Jeremiah is one, Isaiah, you know, all these people, prophets are those people. And there were other uh, righteous people, but as a nation, they had fallen. And as a nation, they went into the exile together. You see, we are to take our communal life, friends, here seriously. We are to take it seriously when we see people falling away from the faith living lives in a way that they shouldn't, apart from away from God's standard. We are to encourage one another and follow Christ together. And unlike the world out there, we are to disregard and be a family of all nations, statuses and classes, education level and personalities. If you are just friends with who are just like you, how is that different from the world? How is that different from the clubs that people have? No, this isn't a club. This is God's kingdom that he is building across all people and nations, classes, um, education, whatever. In the midst of a world where people use one another and discard their relationships when it becomes not useful anymore, we are here to be committed to one another, to love one another, to bear with one another, to forgive one another. We are to be a distinct community of God. And that's important, of course, for us, because that's a way of imitating Jesus towards our sanctification and all of that. Uh, It's a way of persevering in the faith. But it's also important for the world to see that God's kingdom is here in pockets, but it is here that God is in our midst. So we are exiled people, but it won't always stay that way because God is faithful. Because God is faithful, we will all be brought into the promised land and the whole world will be transformed because God is a faithful God. That during the time of the kingdom's prophets, uh, prophets proclaimed God's judgment 
But then, almost at the same breath, they couldn't wait to also proclaim God's hope and promise because God made a promise to Abraham um, that all nations will be blessed because God made a promise to David that his king will sit in the throne and rule over his kingdom forever. So we read in Isaiah chapter 9, For to us a child is born, The next slide, please. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of the greatness of his kingdom, of government and peace. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. David's son comes not because we are good, not because we're worth saving, but because God is a faithful God and he made a promise to send the king in his line to save his people. So God sent Jesus Christ. And this king will usher in a different kind of kingdom in this world and he will solve the fundamental problem that is us, our hearts. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. By the power of the Spirit, our hearts will long for different things. The kingdom will include all nations, not just Israelites. It will be uh, be for the blessing of the whole world, Isaiah 49.6. But the bigger surprise, and the biggest surprise, is what this king will do to bring this kingdom. Instead of conquering the nations, he will suffer on behalf of his people. So we read, he was pierced for our, for our transgressions, Isaiah 53. The Prince of Peace inaugurated the new covenant when he held that bread and the wine, cup of wine, and said, this cup is my new covenant, cup, covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. In the Old Testament, we see God's holiness and God's mercy competing, you know, Sometimes we see God's judgment and holiness, and sometimes we see God's mercy uh, and the promise. On the cross, we see both of these coming together. His justice and mercy are poured out at the same time on the cross while Jesus dies for the sinners like us and offers forgiveness to all. On October 7th, a few weeks ago at 6.30, AM, Hamas launched some 5,000 rockets into Israel. 2,500 Palestinian militants invaded Israel across the border, setting fire on building, massacring about 1,400 people, abducting 200 civilians. In return, Israel cut off water, electricity, ordered evacuation of a half of that region, sent in fighter jets and rockets, And the Palestine now, the death toll is about 7,000. And they're just invading now with ground war. How many more deaths are coming to both sides? Since the fall, since Genesis chapter 4, as Cain kills Abel, we can't seem to know any other way. Sin is in this world. Justice demands retaliation, except it just spirals out of control more and more the cycle continues and we think that we can bring peace through wars but there is a different way 
a different kingdom, a different king. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned for to us a child is born to us. A son is given. Every other religion says, you need to change. You need to do things differently. You need to earn your salvation. You need to make the world better yourself. Christianity says, no, you are sinners. You are the way you are. But God is faithful, and he has sent Jesus, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. Jesus means Yahweh saves. He has paid the price for people's sins, and he says, come to me. He offers forgiveness and the way of mercy in the power of his spirit. He says, love one another. Love your enemies. Friends, the church is a glimpse of that reality that our king has inaugurated, where sinners are reconciled to God, to one another, and to the world. So we must pray for the church in Palestine. We must pray for the church in Israel. We must pray for us here, for ourselves, that we might point uh, people of this world to King Jesus and his kingdom that is now already here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that what we cannot do, you have done through your son, Jesus. You have offered forgiveness. You have offered mercy. You have offered a new way of life by the power of your spirit. Lord, would you now make us your people, people who are enabled to forgive one another, to turn the other cheek, to love one another, to bear with one another, that in this sinful world, we might bear witness to your great mercy and your forgiveness. May the world come to know the hope that we have in King Jesus. Amen.